It's impossible, I will say, and this is a one that will be controversial and get ready for the hate mail. It's impossible, I think, to eat. Hello and welcome to the Pro Rugby Pod. I'm your host, Brian Moylette. I'm a former Irish international age grade player. And each week I chat with a player, a coach or a person involved at the top end of the game to hear about their story, get their insights, and find out what life is like in professional rugby. On Instagram, I'm the Offfield Rugby Coach. That's at Offfield Rugby. Please follow me there and let me know any thoughts or feedback you have for the pod. Please subscribe to the pod if you haven't already. Please leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. And also, please share the pod with some friends. Those simple actions have a big impact and are really, really appreciated. Today in the podcast, I chat with former professional rugby league player and current head of nutrition with the English men's rugby team, Dr. Graham Close. I ask him what it's like working with the English rugby team, what the environment's like, and especially what it's like working with the best coach in the world, my favorite coach, Eddie Jones. If there's any chance in the world, Eddie, that you're listening to this, please can we talk? I asked Graham if there is a place for alcohol in the modern game, whether top players could or should be drinking it. And I also push him on marijuana, CBD, and Graham gives his opinion on whether or not marijuana should be banned and whether professional rugby players should be allowed to smoke weed or not. This chat is really informative for players especially. So Graham talks about how he works with the English players in the lead up to games. So what they eat the day before, the day of games and how meal timings are important here and I also ask him about what if you can't eat before games so I've played with a lot of players who don't want to eat the day of games or don't want to eat in the lead up to games feel like they're going to get sick so he gives really good answers on that. We also chat about how rugby players can gain weight and he gives kind of insights and some tactics and different foods that you can eat if you are a player and you want to put on some extra size and some weight. We chat a good bit as well about supplements. So what's the best supplement for rugby in general? What's good for recovery, muscle soreness, that kind of stuff. And also he talks about the pre-match, um, pre-match kind of pre-workout supplement that the English rugby team take and which he believes is the best one out there the best one on the market then we talk about WADA the world anti-doping agency and uh, Graham gets really honest and upfront here on some of the things he disagrees with with WADA something that's really interesting that I did not know before is that there are loopholes within WADA that players can take banned substances and he explains exactly how this is done so how professional rugby players at certain points can take banned substances. We chat about so much more. We chat about what he thinks an ideal diet looks like for a rugby player, plant-based and how some players are plant-based and how he feels players can do that or how to do it if you are plant-based and the impacts he thinks it has on performance. He talks about the biggest mistakes he sees players making and some of the misconceptions that really affect players' performance and there's so much more in this episode so here is episode number 11 with dr graham close i'm here dr graham close expert nutrition consultant for england rugby for the past seven years head of performance nutrition for the european tour of golf professor of human physiology at liverpool john moore's university former professional rugby league player and uh, lots more graham thanks for jumping on Brian, no problem whatsoever um delighted to be here Cheers. So talk to me a little bit about your playing career, first of all, playing rugby league in England. Yeah, well, where I was brought up in England, uh, a town in the northwest called Wigan, you didn't really have much option. Um, that was that was everything. I, I went to a school with 1,500 uh, pupils and there was no football teams. It was just rugby. That was that was the only thing we were brought up with. And my father worked in the game of rugby. So it was all I ever knew and all I ever wanted to do. And I was fortunate that when I was 15, I was signed professionally for the team that I supported, which was Warrington Wolves. Um, and I went on to have a few first team, first team games for Warrington. Never quite worked for me. 
um, for one reason or another. And I then spent a few years playing in, in the lower divisions. Um, but absolutely loved it. You know, very proud. But I did have a, a short career. Didn't go on to what I would have loved it to have been. Um, but it probably set me up of where I am today with the contacts, the people, the relationships and uh, and my insights into professional sport. Awesome. And so then you started studying nutrition while you were playing. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's correct. And, you know, I was full time in 1995 at Warrington Wolves. And in that era, not everybody was full time. It's when the game was transitioning from the the semi-pro to the full-time pro environment. Uh, and we had a, a coach at that point, Brian Johnson, who was a former school teacher. Uh, and when he knew that I had an opportunity to go to university and I'd turned it down to be a full-time player, uh, Brian actually said he would make it work and, and allowed me to go to university, um, arrange training a little bit to suit our needs. And um, yeah, for a few years, I combined being a a full-time rugby player and a full-time student. So yeah, it was great fun for a few years. Nice. And how was that then dropping down the league? So I've no union, I know the Super League, but say playing the kind of division below, I'm sure it wasn't as glamorous. How, how was that? Yeah, it was an interesting division. You know, some weeks a game of rugby nearly broke out in the middle of a fight. <laughs> it, it, it was, um, and as somebody at five foot five and, 10 stone wet through. It was uh, it was an interesting division to play in. But I ended up playing up in Workington, up in Cumbria. You know, some of the salt of the earth people, the Cumbrians, and really enjoyed my time up there. And it was a physical league. Uh, and we all had aspirations of, of moving back to the Super League. And it nearly happened a couple of times for me. But by the age of 21, 22, I'd had seven knee operations, multiple hamstring wow. tours. And it just wasn't quite happening. But at about that same time, I had a great professor at Liverpool, John Moore's professor, Don McLaren, who maybe saw something in me uh, and, and talked me into doing a PhD in sport nutrition. And, and I guess that was, that was a major change in my career at that point. Nice. And so are you good in school, high school? Did you always have the kind of two options? I know you wanted to be a rugby league player. That was your dream. But were there kind of other options um, available as you were playing? Did you kind of have one eye on going to school and going down that route? <laughs> if, if your listeners could see me, you'd see a big smile on my, fight, on my face. And if you could see my mother, who may be listening, her, fight, her smile would be even bigger <laughs> because... I was virtually thrown out of school at the age of 15. Um, I'd signed professional young. I didn't really want to go to school. All I wanted to do was play rugby. My mum was dropping me off at the front of school, knowing that I wasn't going. And I was walking through school to the back gate and out the back gate so I could go and practice rugby. Uh, and I, yeah, I kind of lost my way a little bit school-wise. Um, I did have one or two good teachers, including the head teacher, who got me back on track. He gave me private lessons in, in the headmaster's office and because I didn't want to admit that I was having extra lessons, we made up this story that I was on lunchtime detentions and, uh, and the head teacher went along with that, uh, Dick Williams, uh, and got me back up to speed really. And I, I kind of did a deal with my mum that I would do A-levels and then she would get off my case and let me go and be a pro rugby player. Uh, and that's all I ever really wanted to do. And yeah, the fact that I, I fell into academia and I only studied sports science, if I'm being honest, Brian, because I thought I could learn how to be a better rugby player. You know, okay. so understanding the body more, understanding nutrition. This was all about me trying to be a better uh, rugby player. There was never really a, a secondary plan. Um, okay. It just kind of, I just kind of fell into it because of one or two unbelievable teachers, a couple at the school who kept me on track. And then, as I mentioned, the likes of Professor Don McLaren at John Moores, who saw something in me that really nurtured. And, and I'm still good friends with Professor McLaren today, and I still use him as a, as a mentor, despite the fact that I'm now a professor in my own right. Yeah, awesome. And did you see, did you then start to see that there was a lot that could be changed within 
the game you're playing. So like you're playing in the leagues at the time you were not at the level you wanted to be, but then you started studying sports science. And was there a moment when you started kind of saying, oh, here, they're not doing things right? Because I know that I was in academies like played underage rugby for Ireland and that kind of stuff. And the nutrition that we were learning or that I knew when I was 15, 16, and that's not as far back as when you're talking about, but was just different to what we know now. So did you start kind of seeing that things could be done differently? Oh, absolutely. And it actually started causing a few problems between my head and my respect in many ways for some people who were coaching us at the time. And I, I remember that, you know, at one point after Brian Johnson had gone and the next coach came in who maybe wasn't as keen on not having full-timers, we had to be in the gym for 4.30 a.m. in the morning for a 5 a.m. start. Oh, wow. And that was the ones who weren't full-time. And at the end of an off-season, I was, I'd was i lost size, strength. I wasn't eating properly. But why? how can you fuel a gym session doing that then going straight to university? And I knew I wasn't getting my protein intake right. I knew lots of things. And then when I was playing down, not at Workington, in another team, and I won't mention the one, but I remember doing a session where I'd pinched a heart rate monitor from a university and I was training in a heart rate monitor. And I was just thinking this session is woeful, that we're not really achieving anything of what I think the coach is trying to achieve. Um, mm. And, and there's lots of that going through, through my head uh, at a variety of times. And, and then what you try and do is feed a little bit of that information into people who will listen. Uh, but then you then get caught between that wanting to be a player and, uh, and a support staff. So I, I guess I found that a little bit challenging, but um, determined that then when I moved into this next career to make sure that we, we do it a lot better than how I was ever taught as a player. Yeah, interesting. And have you had many difficulties in getting your message across? So as a player, I suppose that was a bit different, but have there been, I'd say, old school coaches who are find it difficult to change or not as willing to change? When I work in rugby, I've not come across that at all, if I'm being completely honest. Um, even some of the coaches who've been doing it for many, many years, I think the ones that are still at the top of the game is because they are adaptable and, and they, mm. have, they have learned to adapt their trade. You know, I have no doubt that the way that Eddie Jones coaches today is different to how he coached 30 years ago. We have to adapt. You know, we're dealing with a generation of athletes coming through who, you know, won't learn the same way as athletes from my generation uh, learned. I find when I work in other sporting environments and, you know, some football environments, I find a little bit more challenging where there still is a often a mentality in them sports of this is not how I did it and it worked for me in my day. So all this new stuff I'm not buying into. Uh, mm. But I must be honest, I've not found that in the world of rugby yet. Oh, that's interesting. And you mentioned there, how has working with Eddie Jones been? He's one of my favourite coaches. Uh, you, you can't help but become a better coach by being coached by him. Uh, and he doesn't yeah. coach his players, but he coaches his staff. And, um, you know, you, you can't work under a regime with Eddie without a relentless quest to be a better version of yourself uh, and that's the the challenge that he, he he drives of his staff and his players and and if you've got that attitude where you, you enjoy that and you, you enjoy that uh, relentless quest to get better then there's probably no better environment in world sport to be in you know he's I, i've learned more um over the last few years than, than what i probably have done in the other 40 years of my life if i'm being yeah. honest Wow. So is he kind of pulling coaches aside and just challenging you quite a lot on, on what you're doing, like the different support staff? Like I've listened into a lot of the stuff that he does. I kind of follow him in England and the stuff he's done with the analysts, he's kind of changed their roles and challenges them quite a lot. But how how has he got the best out of you? I think that expectation that whatever you're doing can always probably be done better and there's always a better way to do things. And and that's what you're saying about adapting and, and evolving. But, you know, maybe I've been guilty in the past of having a, a successful method in my head and saying, right, we'll keep going with it, as opposed to how can you improve it and how can you relate to the players better and keep it more interesting and um, just drive that 
quest for getting better and and also someone who's always the you know where you can uh get advice and you know um direction from and you know you, you, you're not scared of asking him your opinion on how you know is it going well how can we do things better um and he's been around so many different environments that you, there's loads to learn from uh, i guess what he does more than anything is create an environment that allows growth and allows you to better yourself you know um often bringing different experts in who you can learn from um and you know visiting different environments himself and learning things and then putting that back to the staff about what can we use here to be better so you know i, I think when you're at the very peak of elite sport uh, and you know i'm fortunate that i share an office with um james morton who's done a lot of work with team sky team Ineos, and he tells me that david brailsford's very similar and these coaches mm-hmm. who are exceptional, I think the one common denominator is that relentless quest for excellence. Uh, and that certainly sums up our current environment. Awesome. And within that like space to grow and challenge each other, do, do you feel a sense of comfort like Eddie comes across or these top coaches, all of them at the top level come across as kind of stern or whatever, but you have to, I think, to be able to grow and get better, make mistakes. So, like, do you feel you feel he creates an environment that you feel comfortable in asking questions or making mistakes? Yeah, I think all the top coaches um, will create that environment. You know, all the top ones I've worked with have got that mentality where, you know, try things, do things, but make sure we're reflecting on mistakes and you don't do it twice and mm. you learn from it and you move on. Um, and... You, you know, you're not making mistakes from a lack of planning and preparation and and research uh, and wisdom, I guess. But um, yeah, I wouldn't like to make the same mistake too many times <laughs> within yeah, yeah. with these top coaches. Um, the, the the need to get better quickly is certainly there. But yeah, it's a great environment to work within. And how has working with the players been? So you said like that all the coaches, the top coaches at the top level are all really open to change, new ideas, adaptable. I'm sure there's been players who haven't been so that so much. Yeah. And again, I, if, if, if you was to ask me to focus that question on rugby, I would be saying you're in behind 90% of players who are keen and want to learn and want to want to know more. And you, you can always win people around, you know, I won't name names, but I remember in my days at Munster, there was one player who loved him to bits, but just at the time didn't seem ready to receive the information. Uh, and that's all fine. You know, loads of good buying and I work with other people and still happy, friendly, chatty. You know, whenever you need me, I'm there. And then at the right time, ask for some advice. And and then this player, I remember one week, my timetable used to go out at Munster. And... um the players would book in to see me. And I, I got a message from this place saying, have you got any time slots on this trip? Because I used to fly over from England. I said, honestly, mate, from landing at the airport to going home tomorrow, everyone's booked up. And he said, right, I'll pick you up at the airport. And we had the consultation in the car driving from the airport to the training ground. And um, that was a real special environment, by the way, my time working at Munster Rugby. If you, you know, if you talk about an environment that's built around values, respect, integrity, but with winning as well, integral to the organisation. Oh, what what an absolute pleasure and privilege that was working in, in that organisation for four or five years. And um, was there ever any difficulty around like drinking and the culture there and trying to clean that up a bit? Because you've been in the game quite a while and I know rugby is getting so much more professional all the time, but... I'm sure at the start there was a bit more of a drinking culture than there is now that you might have had to look at. Yeah, um, there certainly was. And I look back to my playing days and there was certainly a, more of a drinking culture than, than there is now. And I find that the modern player is pretty good at self-management. You don't need to put these, the discipline themselves, don't they? The elite teams are the leaders within the team will sort it out. And don't get me wrong, I think most of us would agree that at the right time and the right place, you know, after a game, a few beers will probably do more good than harm in many situations. But then, yeah. obviously, there's time when when we don't. Um, 
And as I said, the players tend to please themselves. There's some players who I've worked with who just don't touch a drop. Um, and then others who certainly do enjoy uh, yeah. a, a beverage or two after a game. But I think in the modern game, the very, very vast majority know when and when not to and and can handle it very, very well. Yeah, yeah. And just going back to like different players and body shapes and people carrying a few extra kegs, they can still perform as rugby players. How do you strike the balance across the, you know, a prop, a back rower, a winger with different diets? Yeah, I think the first thing to say is that that's the beauty of our game, isn't it? That you don't all have to look the same and be the same. And, and, and there's, a, there's a place for virtually everybody in the team, you know, from your five foot five, 70 odd kilo scrum halves through to your, your 135 number eights. Um, so, that, so that's definitely a great thing about it. And but the other thing I would say is early on in my career, I was perhaps pressed a little bit to come up with what are good numbers for wingers, what are good numbers for props. And I just don't think we can do that because you only need to look at, mm. you know, you take Joe Fock and a Signa compared with Johnny May, two unbelievably yeah. world-class wingers but two completely different shapes. And, you know, what would be an unbelievable body comp for one would not be the ideal body comp for the other one. So I think the biggest thing that I try and encourage and when I speak to people is to try and maximise an individual's body comp to their individual needs. And and also to remember that ultimately it's about how you play on a, on a Saturday. And, and if somebody's, you know, the GPS metrics are, you know, saying that the flying fit you know, the, the contacts of her, the agility, mobility, all that is fine. They're injury-free, they're playing well. Then who am I with a set of skinfold calipers to say you need to take half a keg of fat off? You know, for me, that's a decision for the player and the coach. And then I will help the player and coach to maximise what they're trying to achieve rather than me coming along with a random figure and saying, all world-class wingers are this. We need to get you to it. Yeah. And so there's a lot of self-reflection then with nutrition, is it? It's like you can say these are different things that you could eat, but someone might say, hey, I ate that before the match. I didn't feel great or I think that's too much food for me. Does What he's saying is a lot of it goes down to the individual and yeah. how they feel. Yeah, without doubt. And even more, you know, if we even you meant the example of, a, of a, a pre-match meal. And what we know, and if we go into a little bit of like the science for a second, is that once we get that adrenaline response, that fight or flight response, well, then blood flow to the stomach becomes limited because we're now redirecting blood flow to the brain, to the muscles, ready to rip in. Now, if you've got a player who the morning of a game is one of these who's already headbutting walls and we've got that fight or flight response, well, the way that they're going to handle that pre-match meal will be very different to a typical fly half who's probably reading the paper, feet up and pretty chilled, thinking about what's going to come later in the day. So then you can't say that this is the perfect pre-match meal for a rugby team because that's mm. just one example that can be completely different. So everything, in I think, in modern sports science, whether it's conditioning, uh, psychology, nutrition, has moved much more towards, let's forget what's good for the average and let's focus on what's good for the individual. Uh, and that's certainly where I've tried to take my nutritional structures over the, the last few years, really focusing on what the individual's physical and mental needs are and then maximize a diet to help them. Yeah, yeah. And you just mentioned I've seen the guys that are headbutting the walls at nine in the morning for a game and guys who can't eat. Like, do you have many of those? Do you work with many of those guys who just say to you, I can't eat before a game? and Maybe for, I don't know, five, six, seven hours they can't eat. Or is that still at the top level? I've played with guys who'd be getting sick before games who say they can't eat. If they do eat, they're going to get sick and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, and exactly. And it's because of what um, what I just talked about, about redirecting blood flow away from the stomach. So so what we do is we, we turn it into a, well, look, it really doesn't matter. All we need to make sure is that you're going into that game with your muscle full of carbohydrate and your liver full of carbohydrate. Well, your muscle we deal with the day before a game. So we make sure that's fully loaded day before a game. If we've got a three o'clock kickoff, can we get you up at around eight-ish to have some breakfast? Now your liver's full of carbohydrate, your muscle's full. 
the purpose of a pre-match meal at this point is not to feel hungry. That's all. If you're not hungry, chill out, have a Solero and get ready for your game. You, we, you know, and, and I think giving the players the confidence that actually we can deal with it. We, do, we just change your food the day before a little, change your breakfast a little, and we can go into a, a game without a pre-match meal if needed and be confident that you're fully loaded. Now, other people would be starving by three o'clock if they didn't do that. So then at that point, and then I've got certain players who know, I just want a bowl of porridge. So we'll we'll have a bowl of porridge on as well. And this is where it's about individualising it and knowing what each individual player needs, but coaching them in advance of that time point. But actually, relax. You've done it all. It's all sorted. It's not a problem. This is why. Rechannel that as that's a good thing. And, and we're all... We're all happy to go. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying there, people listening, the the I've heard before in the past, like carb loading the day before, the night before. So are the two things that you should kind of look at is you're getting plenty of carbs in the day before and then before a match, be it, I don't know, three, four hours or the morning of, like you say, to, to fill the liver. Yeah, so yeah, if you've loaded the day before, what we know is once the muscle's full of carbohydrate, it won't leave the muscle to maintain blood glucose. It can't. It's in there to stay. So it's only going to leave the muscle for high-intensity exercise. It's your liver that maintains blood sugar overnight. So when you wake up in the morning on game day, if we've loaded the day before properly, your muscle's still full. It's gone nowhere. It's like filling the car up with petrol and then leaving it on the drive. We don't, we, we don't mm. have to worry about that. It's full. We top the liver up, and then we're loaded and ready to go. And the rest of it, I say, is just about not being hungry and just being comfort, really. So we try and have that finished around about three hours before kickoff and then get on with the important job. And I mentioned before, you know, coaching, and I guess this is maybe something that I've learned from working with excellent rugby coaches, is that my job as a nutritionist is probably better being called a nutrition coach, where I'm trying to coach yeah. the players how to how to eat better. And because of that, I need coaching skills and, you know, watching world-class coaches coach has without doubt helped me become a better nutrition coach. And I think the more the sub-disciplines can see themselves as coaches, the better we will be at translating that information and working out that different people have different learning styles. And, you know, I've, I've sat in and I'm just thinking um, at my time at Munster, sat in a hotel drawing out the digestive tract for one of the players to explain where different foods are digested and absorbed because he wanted that information. Compared with somebody where I'm just saying, mate, eat that bowl of um, porridge now and you'll be fine and don't, don't worry yourself. And that's part of the art of knowing how much information a player wants. Um, I always think they need to know some of the why then they can make the decisions themselves if I'm not there. I guess it's how deep with the why is depending on that individual. Yeah, yeah. And was there a moment when you kind of realised that you needed to move towards being a coach and that kind of just get that mindset? Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to think now when that moment came. Um, and I, I probably couldn't pinpoint it. I think it was more... The more I studied molecular biology and exercise biochemistry, the more I realized that the barrier to players doing what we want them to do wasn't me not knowing exactly what molecule is phosphorylated at what point, but getting a player to understand that's a bowl of carbohydrate and how can we convince them and coach them to do it. So it definitely became more of a realization of understanding the behavior and behavior change in psychology um and it was probably watching the likes of eddie coach and and how he you know the art of coach you know he, he makes sure he's assessing i know it's obvious stuff i do as a co university tutor but make sure that you're, you're getting your messages clear and simple and you're not uh you're assessing learning you're making sure they've understood and you're pitching it at the right level and at the right time and watching brilliant coaches coach can only make you were a better coach. Yeah, for sure. And do you have any difficulties around like dietary requirements? Like, are there any, it seems that 
today there's so many more dietary requirements and i don't know when i was a kid like you celiac um people that want to be plant-based or pescatarian have you had any challenges around that or are kind of by and large and say the England team or teams you've worked with quite homogenous and that they eat similar things yeah there's always going to be some situations and the more I can keep the athletes I work with off the internet and off Netflix the easier my life will be because there's always a, a new whether it's conspiracy, what the health game changes, um, all these documentaries which basically tell you that whatever you eat is going to kill you, so don't eat any food and you'll be fine. Um, So you've always got them type of challenges, but like I say, you know, particularly, you know, England where I've worked for a while now, I I like to think I've got the trust of, of the lads and, it's great how often they come to me and say, I've, I've read this, what do you think? I've heard this, what do you think? And they've got the, the common sense to run things by me. And what I've got to be careful of is, as I'm not too dismissive, if someone's got a belief or they've read something or, you know, it, it's my job to be respectful and listen. And, you know, and, and I, I have recently dealt with some athletes who've decided for, for a variety of reasons that they've wanted to try a plant-based approach. I'm, I'm fine, you know. But it's my job to support them through it uh, and help them make the best choices to maximize their performance. Yeah, yeah. And I went plant-based for like four months, probably after this, like, yeah, when the game changers came out and just different reasons. I just read different things and I just said I tried out because I've tried out everything. Like I tried out high carb, like, you know, a lot of meat and I've tried out loads of diets in the past and paleo, everything. But I found that I felt really good, but it was during COVID, so I wasn't playing, but I didn't, my lifts went down. I wasn't as, didn't feel as strong, but I did, I did feel good. You know what I mean? So, so what would you say to someone who is a plant-based or what do you say to those guys? How do you, how do they maintain performance? So the first question I ask them is why? And if the reason why is because of moral and ethical reasons, then it is not my job to change their morals and their ethics. You, you know, my job is to be respectful and help to the very best of my ability. If the reason why is they've watched the game changes and they think that eating one egg is like smoking 20 Marlboro Lights, then it's my job to educate and actually yeah. say that, Luke, um, there's a little bit of propaganda in here. Um, do you want to know the genuine uh pros and cons of a plant-based approach and and then we discuss them through if it's that first reason the moral and ethical well then we've got to say right how can, what can we do to help you maximize performance there are certain things like vitamin b12 as you'll know that you can't get in a plant-based diet so we'll need to deal with that um there's certain things like you know ironing uh, intake would have to increase because we're going to get non-heme instead of heme iron um the protein very achievable, but generally it's a much higher fiber content with the beans and pulses and things like that. So we need to make sure that we can hit the protein requirements without feeling full too quickly. Um, generally, the carbohydrate amount will increase on a plant-based based approach, so that we can normally leave that one to itself. And then we might need to look at one or two specific supplements like creatine and things like that. But you, you you're not going to get in a um in a in a plant-based diet so yeah my, my job is to support them through it and write them a meal plan which and i think we can do it plant-based with careful thought and attention not to make the athlete perform better but to make them perform no worse i don't think i can make them a better athlete plant-based i might be able to make them a bit healthier particularly the diet was full of processed meat and junk food to start with and now they've gone onto much more of a, a plant-based. I think what I would say while we're on about plant-based is there's a lot of junk-based, plant-based food now as like alternates or, you know, highly processed vegan burgers in a supermarket. And I don't think if you switch from a, a meat diet to a junk-based vegan one, you, you're going to help yourself. So but there's a few things to navigate. And I guess my take-home message is I'm pretty convinced if you can put the attention in we can make it at a no detriment to the performance. Yeah, yeah. No, I fully agree with that. And uh, you say about the processed plant-based burgers, like they're 
they're definitely no better. And the reason that I tried it is because I was eating like McDonald's burgers and deli ham and like all this kind of crap. So I was like, it was a way for me to cut out meat for a while. You'll see how it was. But to be honest, I've gone back to eating fish. So for the last year or so, so I eat fish and plant based. And yeah, I feel like I'm getting my protein in. I'm strong and it feels good for me. I've said for a few years now, but actually, I think most athletes should be plant based, just not plant exclusive. So mm. if, if you was to want to eat as healthily as possible, I'm not convinced many people would argue that you start your plate around a massive variety of different vegetables, fruits, grains, all stuff like that. And then to get the protein intake right, I think adding, like you said, lean, you know, fish and um, maybe, you know, lean meats like chicken and things like that. And then on top of that, providing you've not got a dairy intolerance, you know, put some milk and some uh, yogurts, Greek yogurts around it. And I think you've got the basis of a really good diet. But that for me, that is plant-based. It's just not plant-exclusive. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, And you mentioned creatine there. I take creatine every day, but is that for for kind of recovery and, you know, in the gym? But when should people be taking creatine? So I, I think creatine is probably the best sports supplement we have still got. And I think the reason why it's not as popular in 2021 is because we've known about it since about 1990. And what you find in sport is everybody wants the next best thing. But as yet, I don't think we've anything better than creatine. And it never ceases to amaze me when I go into sports organizations and you ask, you know, are you a lot on creatine? Like ah, we were a few years ago, but we don't anymore. Why not? I don't know. Well, it's the one supplement that's proven to improve speed, size, strength, recovery, prevent loss of muscle mass with injury. So many different things. So I, you know, and we've now got twenty or thirty years of research that shows there really are no health consequences about it. So when it first came out, people were, you know, was all the will it affect? kidneys um does it cause muscle pulls you know eric rawson has done 20 or 30 years on this and that's all put to bed um so the other reason it's not talked about a lot is that it's dirt cheap now isn't it you can get a big bag of creatine for about 10 10 or something like that and then people try and do yeah but this is special creatine or creatine serum that one makes me laugh for creatine serum because you can't actually get creatine into a serum so it's just a bag of liquid with nothing in and it's normally expensive so you're right a bag of creatine about a tenner you load on it for about five days and then you take a teaspoon a day for a few weeks you get loads of performance benefits and you've spent a tenner and there's probably no if you've got 10 pound to spend on supplements go and buy a a bag of batch tested creatine um so yeah i'm a big fan of it it's one that i still like to use with the power-based sports that i work in and one that i, I think is underused and overcomplicated. And should you take it every day as a rugby player? Like if you're in the gym and you're playing and you're, as you say, muscle recovery? Yeah, but the body turns over about two or three grams a day of it and we'll make a little bit. But that's where this maintenance dose of five grams comes from. It's to replace what we're turning over with a little bit of an excess. And, you know, that's going to be plenty, even for a rugby player to get the, the maximum benefit. So we're just replacing the amount that we're turning over when we're physically active. And yeah, I'd just take a teaspoon every day and chill out. Yeah. And then uh, pre-workouts, what would people take before matches? Um, at the top level, caffeine, I think, is, is a brilliant one, obviously. it's you, You've kind of summarized it perfectly in that one word, caffeine. If you look at pre-workouts, the vast majority are nonsense. Um, the vast majority are based around caffeine and have a whole load of other things added because otherwise people just find the cheapest caffeine. So people are always trying to find the next. A lot of them have betralanine added, which is basically to give your skin a bit of a tingle because that paresthesia yeah. that you get with betralanine, people think, oh, that must be working. But... Uh, it, you know, that's, that's not there for that reason. Um, and there are some that you can buy that maybe help you, but would also help you to a quick anti-doping rule violation if you're a, a drug-tested athlete. 
the pre-trainers and the fat burners are the two highest risk of an anti-doping offence because most stimulants that are proven to be an effective stimulant will be prohibited by WADA, with the exception of caffeine. So, uh, and the, the other thing that a batch-tested athlete needs to be aware of is that, you know, some of these things are called weird and wonderful things. So where most athletes would probably aware that ephedrine, ephedra is banned. Would they know that cedocordophilia, moahang, mormon tea, you know, all the same thing, but under a different word, are also, you know, it's the same thing. So when you're looking on the back of a packet of a pre-trainer, you, you might not see anything that's too um, stand out, but it's, a, it's an issue. But trust me, if it's not just caffeine, anything else in there is either a placebo or going to get you banned. Okay. And uh, just one other one then. I see a citrine mallet. Yes. Yeah. So what, what's that are your thoughts? So th- this is to do with, uh, you'd normally see that alongside uh, betralanine and uh, from a like buffering yeah. perspective. I think we can describe that one as the jury's out, but there's no, you know, it's not one where I would hang my hat upon. It's not one that I've ever um, promoted in, in a big way with the athletes I work with because I've never seen the evidence strong enough in either the literature or the real world to convince me. I do use betralanine, as I mentioned, there as a buffer. Um, so we know that, if, but you need to take it for about six weeks, betralanine. Again, you just need a straightforward betralanine. And what that will do is increase muscle carnosine, which helps to shunt hydrogen ions out, which will help with that, what we used to call lactate or heavy legs that you feel. So that built, you know, uh, changing. Uh, muscle pH, which can um, be an issue during exercise. So betralanine is a good buffer, um, and that's probably the buffer of choice at the moment in in team sports. Cool. And I see that you're doing a good bit of work with CBD or researching that, um, I see on Twitter. So could you talk to me a little bit about that? So, yeah, CBD was one of them where... About five years ago now, it must have been. Um, yeah, around about five years ago, one of the players came to me and said, I want to try CBD. What do you think? Um, I'll be honest, at the time, I couldn't even spell CBD. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> no, I had to even look up what it was. And then I had the conversation with this player, and he, and he explained to me what it was and why he wants to try it. Um, and a quick search revealed that it was prohibited by WADA and so it was an easy conversation saying you know at the moment it's prohibited by WADA uh, end of conversation jump forward to 2018 WADA as we do the update the prohibited list each January decide to remove CBD so at that point I need to know more because now my players are asking me about it it's not prohibited by WADA, and it's my job as a credible scientist, practitioner, coach to coach my athletes around it. And that, I guess, has led on to me spending the last two years of my research career working on CBD. Um, and it's fascinating. At the moment, I would say it's still too risky for an athlete to take, despite many athletes taking it. And the reason that I say that is that if it comes from the plant, the chances are there's going to be other cannabinoids within that bottle that are prohibited by WADA. Now, everybody is concerned about THC, uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, which is a major psychotropic cannabinoid, the one that basically within the marijuana plant that gets people high. So that's what athletes, I believe, understand is prohibited by WADA. But what I don't think they understand as well is that within a cannabis plant, there's at least 140 cannabinoids, of which CBD is one and THC is another. And the other 138 are still prohibited by WADA. So when you get a bottle of CBD that says THC-free, is it also saying it's free from all other cannabinoids? Because in theory, WADA could test for any of them, such as CBG, which does have some other reported health benefits. And if that was in an athlete's system, they're facing an anti-doping rule violation. 
<clears throat> so at the moment, my advice is that we probably can't take it as a drug-tested athlete. But I've got it growing on muscle cells. I'm about to load up non-tested athletes. I'm doing all sorts of research with it in the university. And I'm fascinated where it may go because the claims suggest that it can help with muscle soreness. It can help with muscle regeneration. It can help with sleep. It can help with anxiety. And it can help even with concussion, traumatic brain injury. Now, there are five things that as a rugby player we're very, very keen to help with. So I think it's my job as a scientist to explore these and trying to get the answers. Yeah, so you're just kind of at the precipice or just before getting kind of answers, you're in the trial period at the moment, is that Correct, yeah. And and the answers genuinely aren't out there because, you know, CBD and the cannabinoids have been under prohibition for many, many years. And when they became not under prohibition, they were still banned by WADA. So we've not, there was no point testing a product that's banned by WADA as, as a sports scientist. So 2018 comes along, and now we're all keen. But you, I've spent the last six months trying to get ethical approval to do these type of studies because there's still major concerns because it's still, you know, the risks that I've just talked about, about potentially uh, causing an athlete to fail an anti-doping test. So to try and get ethics to study it is really hard. So we really don't know anywhere near what we need to know before we can start advising it. But as you well know, athletes love to be early adopters. So trying to convince them at the moment to just hang fire till we know a bit more is not the easiest thing I've ever tried to do. Yeah, yeah. And now this might, you might want to answer this, but um, Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps have both like come out and said they smoke weed. Do you think that weed should be banned what a great question um well look let's go back to if you've got to think about what it was set up for so we're not going to talk about whether i think weed should be criminalized or legal or illegal that's for a whole different ethical debate but let's talk about it from a wider sanctioning perspective why why was originally brought in we've got to remember the reason for WADA was to stop unintentional or state-sponsored type doping where people were given things that they didn't know they were taking. So it was brought in for the protection of athletes in many ways. And there's three criteria that WADA use to ban something. And you've got to hit two of the three criteria. Criteria number one is performance enhancing. So there is no evidence whatsoever that cannabis is performance enhancing. You know, I've recently written a paper on this. And yes, there are suggestions that in fine motor control sports, it may do, but the, the evidence is just not there. And if anything, there's evidence that it's detrimental to performance. So we can, it's not that one. The second one is dangerous to health. So you, you can probably make a claim that cannabis is dangerous to health. So then it comes on to the third one. The third one is against the spirit of sport. Now, if you can tell me what that means, you're better than me. Now, I've taken that in the past to mean um, many things, but one thing it could mean is you probably wouldn't want an athlete who, like it or not, is a role model walking around smoking a joint because is that in the spirit of sport to see somebody walk into a game smoking a joint? You know, against the spirit of sport could mean like an unf- giving an unfair advantage or whatever you want it to mean. And so that's where we need to debate it. Um, personally, I don't see a need to ban it, if I'm being honest, because for me, what we're trying to stop are people taking things to enhance performance at the detriment of the person we're playing against and to maintain a level playing field. And do you know what? I'd love to have played rugby against somebody who was off the head on smoking a joint. I think it'd be far easier to handle them than if they had all the fences yeah. around them. Joking aside, you know, look, what I'm saying is I don't think it's performance enhancing. And for me, that is where I think WADA should be concentrating. And I think WADA have got much bigger fish to fry from an anti-doping side of things than somebody who may or may not in their own time decide that that's what they want to do. Yeah, no, great answer. And um, it's interesting you say there about the spirit of sports. Like I grew up in Ireland where there is a huge and awful drinking culture. You know what I mean? Like alcohol 
damages so many people and families and everything. And then I moved to the States to do a master's and I'm living in Vancouver now on the West coast of the Americas. Um, but over here, like marijuana is so accepted, um, so, so accepted far more than alcohol, like because, or far more than nicotine. Like if someone's smoking a cigarette in a outside a, a door shop front or something, people would be kind of turning at them and kind of like, Oh, would you kind of move mm. away? But even marijuana, not so much because the smell isn't as, yeah. um, it's not as bad, like, or whatever. And it's just funny because when I grew up in Ireland, you were told that's her- nearly like heroin or cocaine or any of these class A drugs. And if you go near that, you're going to be on the streets. And it was just such a, a no-no. Whereas over here, it's just so culturally accepted. It's legal here. And um, people can walk down the street smoking a joint and people who are smoking a joint are far less aggressive than people who are drunk. They're far uh, less likely to get into trouble or to be anything antisocial. You know what I mean? So it's just interesting that WADA maybe is kind of archaic in the way that they're, they have just dismissed it. And it's probably like a lot of governments as yeah, well, well. I don't know if you saw on the back it. of the US Sprinter case uh, and, and yeah. several objections from a lot of people now, particularly in America, They've announced WADA that next year they're going to relook at its classification. Now, nothing will change for the 2022 January release. But if I was a betting man, I wonder whether we'll see it coming off at the 2023. And you're right when you mention alcohol, because if you use the same three criteria of of WADA, of um, is it performance-enhancing alcohol? Probably not. No. Is it dangerous to health? Yeah, I think we can go off that. Is it against the spirit of sport? I'd say a rugby player rocking up to a game drunk was against the spirit of sport. So you could make an argument as to why alcohol isn't prohibited. Um, but yeah, if, if I was a betting man, I think something will change on the on the marijuana front. And they've said they're going to look into it. Um, and it'll be a, a watch this space, I think. Cool. Cool. Yeah, no, I think that's brilliant because, like I say about the American sprinter, and you look at the Diaz, I don't know if you follow MMA, but the Diaz brothers and like lots of other MMA fighters who, after a fight, want to smoke a joint and they don't, you know, they want to relax and they do it in the lead up to fights now, which is something else. Yeah, well, USC have now removed marijuana, haven't they? And have have so of the NBA for this season. So that's two sports that have removed it. The other thing to remember at marijuana, which again is completely nonsensical by WADA, and it sounds like I'm having a bash at WADA here, and in some ways I am. WADA is banned in competition, but not out of it. So technically, if you wanted to smoke a joint out of competition, so after a fight, if you was a boxer, um, providing you know in the remit when it's out of officially out of competition, then you would be okay. Apart from the fact that we know that the half-life and how long it stays in the system. So you could potentially, as a rugby player, smoke it on a Monday, clearly out of competition because the game's on a Saturday. But it's still, because of the half-life, etc., still in your system on a Saturday when it's banned yeah. in competition. So there's some crazy rules by word. A lot of the stimulants are only banned in competition but not out of it which just doesn't make any sense to me because the argument is that if it's banned in competition, it's because it will help performance on competition. But if, it, if it's helping your performance on competition, it's going to help you train. And the better you train, the better mm. you get. So why do we have this in and out of competition list? For me, it's either banned or it's not banned. And I just can't understand for the life of me why Word I have this in and out of competition um, differentiation doesn't make sense to me yeah for sure and like that's a slight tangent but the problem with um steroids like so say if you're out of competition during the summer and you're taking loads of stimulants and all these things and you're seeing huge gains in the gym and you're getting better as an athlete and then you change in september and you become in competition You've benefited hugely from taking all those things out of competition. I'm not saying steroids. Yeah, are, I'm going to say yeah, steroids um, are banned all the time in and out of competition. Yeah, but the stimulants yeah. uh, are mainly only banned in competition. So you could, as you say, take these prohibited stimulants to train the host down if you if you thought they were effective. 
like I say, if, if, if we believe they're effective enough to be banned in competition, I just don't understand why you wouldn't ban them around training as well. And it just adds such a level of confusion when you're working with athletes. I'm fortunate one of the sports I work in is golf, and golf uses a different organisation. <clears throat> and golf, just that organisation just came up with everything is banned. If it's banned, it's banned at all times. There's no difference between in and out of competition. And for me, that's just a far more sensible approach than this in and out of competition list. Yeah, yeah. No, th- thanks, Mill, for your time. You just have like two or three more questions. But um, what do you think the biggest misconception or mistake rugby players make around nutrition? Um, carbophobia and an obsession with protein. So when, and let me contextualize that. We know that obviously rugby players need somewhere between one and a half to two grams per kilogram body mass of protein. And we know that around about 0.4 grams per kg per meal. But I still see people who just would put like four chicken breasts on a plate at one point. And, and then it's not going to do any harm. I'm not worried about some people say kidneys and things like that. But that can be at the expense of other foods, such as some carbohydrates at the right time that are proven to enhance performance. And I still think there's this lack of appreciation that if you're overweight, it's not because you're eating too much carbohydrate, it's because you're eating too much food. And and actually, we need to get your total caloric intake down. So I would say that's probably the biggest one, plus an over-reliance on supplements at the expense of real food. So yeah, so with the supplements, just people taking too many, too much weight gainer or protein shakes, and not yeah. enough, as you say, chicken breasts or real yeah, food. There's probably about half a dozen supplements where there's enough efficacy, and I think we've discussed most of them tonight. Um, yeah. But you go into like a, a supplement shop, there's probably a thousand different products. You know, look at some of these companies, how many different products they've got. Um, <clears throat> another one that I say all the time is, you know. Rubbish food is rubbish food, even if you add a bit of whey protein to it. It now doesn't become a health yeah. food. So you see like biscuits, crisps, chocolate bars, with, you know, with a bit of whey added. You know, I joking with protein, people yeah. like a turd is still a turd if you add 20 grams of protein. It's just a turd with 20 grams of protein in. I still don't want to eat that yeah. turd. Yet, you know, yeah. you, you see people munching on these cookies and all that because it's a protein cookie. And you know what? You don't need any more protein. You're having plenty in your diet. Just go and eat a Mars bar if you want one or something. You know, don't think that this is now a health food because it's got a little bit of protein added. And um, yeah, that that's one misconception I'd like to see die pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Um, and I think you kind of touched on it there with caloric intake, but what would you say or how could someone gain weight? So like a young rugby player would say a teenager and... I know the game is kind of moving away from weight being so important, but someone who's really skinny and they need to put on some weight. Yeah. Uh, I hear that as well, that the game's moving away from that. I just don't see it. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm mm. five foot six in, in a, a land of giants, but um, yeah, I feel completely inadequate around the people I work with. Um, look, I, I think people don't understand the amount of food that you often need to eat to gain weight. So if I've got like a six foot uh, second row who's 110 and wants to get to 115, well, the resting metabolic rate, so the amount of calories we're going to need at rest will be around about 2,700. If they're doing an hour a day of really hard training, then they're going to need 1,000 births. That's 3,700. Then we're going to be lifting in the gym Maybe do another 500 there, so you're on 4,200. Then you've got the thermic effect of food. So 10% of what you eat gets metabolized. So if you eat 5,500, has gone. So now you're on to 4,900. And then we need at least six or 700 a day excess to put on some lean mass. So we're up to about five, six, if not 6,000 calories. It's impossible, I will say, and this is a one that will be controversial and get ready for the hate mail. It's impossible, I think, to eat 6,000 calories of white fish and vegetables and sweet potato. It, it just, at some point, you're going to have to put some food into your body that somebody has told you isn't clean. 
Because to get to 6,000 calories with a normal appetite whilst doing all the training that you're doing in a day takes some doing. And, and I listened to an interview recently with Paul O'Connell, and he didn't mention me, so I can't even remember if it was my idea or not, but I'll take credit in case it was. And he was talking about the only way he could do it in his career was to start adding things like ice cream to smoothies. And it was only when there was a realisation in his head, he said in this interview, that actually, you know, he, he probably saw that at one point as being unprofessional and being the most professional athlete I've ever worked with, or one of the most. Um, I can't be dismissive to the people I currently work with, but what, you know, what an incredible athlete yeah. and privilege it was to work with that man, by the way. Um, you know, everything wanting to be better for him or best for me. It probably was a... It took a while of realisation to actually keep that weight on. I'm going to need to put some foods like that into me. Otherwise, I'm just not going to get there. Uh, and that's maybe another misconception. And, you know, I challenge someone to try it one day. Try and eat 6,000 calories of vegetables, sweet potato and fish. I've, um, on that, I've tried it a few couple of months ago. I was like, I eat, I think I eat relatively healthy and I don't want to be eating chocolate bars and all that kind of stuff just because even with the sugar, you know, you get the sugar yeah. crashes and I, I just try to eat good whole foods, we'll say. And uh, three months ago, post-COVID, games were starting up here again and I just needed to put on a few kilos. So I was eating a lot of, um, like you say, I was eating all the whole foods, healthy foods, but it was just hard to get the weight on. And I actually just had that realization. I came to that realization myself. It's like, all right, I need to have a, a shake or, you know, yeah. like with couple of chocolate bars in it or whatever or just kind of pile on that kind of other stuff you know yeah. to get the calories up. without a shadow of a doubt and yeah it's it's the reason why if you're trying to get someone to lose weight you want them eating all that type of food because you you fill your appetite up in not a lot of calories so if you can get somebody to eat the vast majority of the population should do which is plant-based loads of vegetables real fibrous mm. foods white fish you know, um, starchy type sweet potato things, then I challenge you to get to two and a half to 3,000 calories that way without feeling stuffed. Um, so then when you, you've got the opposite dilemma, well, then you need to actually almost reverse engineer it and think, how are we going to get there? Um, and yeah, I think that's an important lesson for people listening today that, you know, when it comes to weight gain, once we've got the training right and we've got the protein intake right at the right amount of, you know, one and a half to two grams per kg body mass, well, the next is just a math stick game. It's getting in a calorie surplus. Yeah, 100%. Graham, thank you so, so much for your time this evening. I greatly appreciate it. I've learned so much and I know people listening to this will, uh, will learn just as much. No problem. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. I thought that was class. I learned so much from Graham. I thought it was cool as well, the way he was so honest and had a go at WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and kind of called them up on some pretty silly practices with the banned substances being allowed out of competition. I also enjoyed his perspective on plant-based and that kind of diet. I thought he was really objective, which is refreshing these days because while it's really stupid these kind of things seem to divide people like people have such strong opinions on yeah stupid things like a diet like it doesn't matter like you can just try things out and that's as i said in the in the podcast so i tried it out probably 18 months ago it was just like hey i watched watch game changers listen to a few different things and as i said i was eating a lot of kind of shitty mcdonald's at the time and just eating really bad quality meat that's what i found that the supermarkets here in Canada I just found the meat wasn't great and so I decided to, to cut out the meat for a while and see how I felt and yeah as I said I felt good although then I did realize that after a while I wasn't as strong like I didn't feel as strong in the gym so brought back in fish and yeah I, I've tried all the diets in my time and yeah just liked hearing his opinion on that thought it was cool that he said weed should be legal essentially um anyone who knows me that's my opinion i think that weed is a lot better for the majority of people than alcohol and i think that we 
overlook how detrimental alcohol can be. I'm really happy that he's being a pioneer and doing studies into CBD. And yeah, I think that those sound really interesting. I am very interested in seeing yeah, what comes out of those studies. And hopefully, as Graham said, in 2023, athletes will be allowed to smoke weed so that there's no more bullshit bans like Shakari Richardson, the US sprinter, had to receive there within the last year. And also, I think Michael Phelps has got into trouble, the Diaz brothers, and lots of people have been banned for smoking weed. And I just think it is absolutely ridiculous in this day and age that that is happening. So, fingers crossed that happens. There was so much in that podcast that was just so beneficial and educational, informational for rugby players. So please share it with a couple of friends. If you're into rugby, I know you have a few friends that are into rugby and I don't think there's anyone who wouldn't benefit from hearing from Graham. Like the stuff he was saying was incredible, I thought. So yeah, please share it with a few friends. would really appreciate that. If you have any thoughts or feedback for me about this pod or future people you'd like to have on, Please contact me on Instagram at offfieldrugby, the offfield rugby coach. Send me a DM there or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you liked this episode as well, I think that you would like the one with Claire Sadler. So Claire is the USA Men's Sevens Mental Skills Coach and she has also worked with the RFU English Rugby in the past as well. So yeah, if you liked this kind of podcast... I'd be pretty certain you'll like that one as well. So go back to that one if you haven't listened to it. Really appreciate you clicking in and listening and spending time here today. Have a brilliant rest of your day. Cheers.